Chapter One, Part One of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter One, Part One. A little dinner with Mr. Lucullus Fyshe. The Mausoleum Club stands on the quietest corner of the best residential street in the city. It is a Grecian building of white stone. About it are great elm trees with birds, the most expensive kind of birds, singing in the branches. The street in the softer hours of the morning has an almost reverential quiet. Great motors move drowsily along it, with solitary chauffeurs returning at ten-thirty after conveying the earlier of the millionaires to their downtown offices. The sunlight flickers through the elm-trees, illuminating expensive nursemaids wheeling valuable children in little perambulators. Some of the children are worth millions and millions. In Europe, no doubt, you may see in the Unter den Linden Avenue or the Champs-Élysées, a little prince or princess go pass with a clattering military guard of honor. But that is nothing. It is not half so impressive, in the real sense, as what you may observe every morning on Plutoria Avenue beside the Mausoleum Club in the quietest part of the city. Here you may see a little toddling princess in a rabbit suit who owns fifty distilleries in her own right. There, in a lacquered perambulator, sails past a little hooded head that controls from its cradle an entire New Jersey corporation. The United States Attorney General is suing her as she sits in a vain attempt to make her dissolve herself into constituent companies. Nearby is a child of four in a khaki suit who represents the merger of two trunk-line railways. You may meet in the flickered sunlight any number of little princes and princesses far more real than the poor survivals of Europe. Incalculable infants wave their fifty-dollar ivory rattles in an inarticulate greeting to one another. A million dollars of preferred stock laughs merrily in recognition of a majority control going past in a go-cart drawn by an imported nurse. And through it all the sunlight falls through the elm-trees, and the birds sing and the motors hum, so that the whole world, as seen from the boulevard of Plutoria Avenue, is the very pleasantest place imaginable. Just below Plutoria Avenue, and parallel with it, the trees die out and the brick and stone of the city begins in earnest. Even from the avenue you see the tops of the skyscraping buildings in the big commercial streets, and can hear, or almost hear, the roar of the elevated railway earning dividends. And beyond that again the city sinks lower, and is choked and crowded with the tangled streets and little houses of the slums. In fact, if you were to mount to the roof of the Mausoleum Club itself on Plutoria Avenue, you could almost see the slums from there. But why should you? And on the other hand, if you never went up on the roof, but only dined inside among the palm-trees, you would never know that the slums existed, which is much better. There are broad steps leading up to the club, so broad and so agreeably covered with matting, that the physical exertion of lifting oneself from one's motor to the door of the club is reduced to the smallest compass. The richer members are not ashamed to take the steps one at a time, 
first one foot and then the other, and at tight money periods, when there is a black cloud hanging over the stock exchange, you may see each and every one of the members of the mausoleum club dragging himself up the steps after this fashion, his restless eyes filled with the dumb pathos of a man wondering where he can put his hand on half a million dollars. But at gayer times, when there are gala receptions at the club, its steps are all buried under expensive carpet, soft as moss, and covered over with a long pavilion of red and white awning to catch the snowflakes, and beautiful ladies are poured into the club by the motorful. Then, indeed, it is turned into a veritable Arcadia, and for a beautiful pastoral scene, such as would have gladdened the heart of a poet who understood the cost of things, commends me to the Mausoleum Club on just such an evening. Its broad corridors and deep recesses are filled with shepherdesses such as you never saw, dressed in beautiful shimmering gowns and wearing feathers in their hair that droop off sideways at every angle known to trigonometry. And there are shepherds, too, with broad white waistcoats and little patent leather shoes and heavy faces and congested cheeks and there is dancing and conversation among the shepherds and shepherdesses with such brilliant flashes of wit and repartee about the rise in wabash and the fall in cement that the soul of louis cortez would leap to hear it and later there is supper at little tables when the shepherds and shepherdesses consume preferred stocks and gold interest bonds in the shape of chilled champagne and iced asparagus and great platefuls of dividends and special quarterly bonuses are carried to and fro in silver dishes by Chinese philosophers dressed up to look like waiters. But on ordinary days there are no ladies in the club, but only the shepherds. You may see them sitting about in little groups of two and three under the palm trees, drinking whiskey and soda, though, of course, the more temperate among them drink nothing but whiskey and lithia water and those who have important business to do in the afternoon limit themselves to whiskey and radnor or whiskey and magi water there are as many kinds of bubbling gurgling mineral waters in the caverns of the mausoleum club as ever sparkled from the rocks of homeric greece and when you have once grown used to them it is as impossible to go back to plain water as it is to live again in the forgotten house in a side street that you inhabited long before you became a member Thus the members sit and talk in undertones that float to the ear through the haze of Havana smoke. You may hear the older men explaining that the country is going to absolute ruin, and the younger ones explaining that the country is forging ahead as it never did before. But chiefly they love to talk of great national questions, such as the protective tariff and the need of raising it, the sad decline of the morality of the working man, the spread of syndicalism, and the lack of Christianity in the labor class, and the awful growth of selfishness among the mass of the people. So they talk, except for two or three that drop off to directors' meetings, till the afternoon fades and darkens into evening, and the noiseless Chinese philosophers turn on soft lights here and there among the palm trees. Presently they dine at white tables glittering with cut glass and green and yellow Rhine wines, and after dinner they sit again among the palm-trees, half hidden in the blue smoke, still talking of the tariff and the labor class, and trying to wash away the memory and the sadness of it in floods of mineral waters. So the evening passes into night, 
and one by one the great motors come throbbing to the door, and the mausoleum club empties and darkens till the last member is borne away, and the Arcadian day ends in well-earned repose. "'I want you to give me your opinion very, very frankly,' said Mr. Lucullus Fyshe, on one side of the luncheon-table to the Reverend Fairforth Furlong on the other. "'By all means,' said Mr. Furlong. Mr. Fyshe poured out a wine-glassful of soda and handed it to the rector to drink. "'Now tell me very truthfully,' he said. "'Is there too much carbon in it?' "'By no means,' said Mr. Furlong. "'And quite frankly, not too much hydrogen?' "'Oh, decidedly not.' "'And you would not say that the percentage of sodium bicarbonate was too great for the ordinary taste?' "'I certainly should not,' said Mr. Furlong, and in this he spoke the truth. "'Very good, then,' said Mr. Fyshe. "'I shall use it for the Duke of Dulham this afternoon.' He uttered the name of the Duke with that quiet, democratic carelessness which meant that he didn't care whether half a dozen other members lunching at the club could hear or not. After all, what was a Duke to a man who was president of the People's Traction and Suburban Company— and the Republican Soda and Siphon Cooperative, and Chief Director of the People's District Loan and Savings. If a man with a broad basis of popular support like that was proposing to entertain a duke, surely there could be no doubt about his motives. None at all. Naturally, too, if a man manufactures soda himself, he gets a little oversensitive about the possibility of his guests noticing the existence of too much carbon in it. In fact, ever so many of the members of the Mausoleum Club manufacture things, or cause them to be manufactured, or, what is the same thing, merge them when they are manufactured. This gives them their peculiar chemical attitude towards their food. One often sees a member suddenly call the head waiter at breakfast to tell him that there is too much ammonia in the bacon, and another one protest at the amount of glucose in the olive oil and another that there is too high a percentage of nitrogen in the anchovy. A man of distorted imagination might think this tasting of chemicals in the food a sort of nemesis of fate upon the members. But that would be very foolish, for in every case the head-waiter, who is the chief of the Chinese philosophers mentioned above, says that he'll see to it immediately and have the percentage removed. And as for the members themselves— they are about as much ashamed of manufacturing and merging things as the Marquis of Salisbury is ashamed of the founders of the Cecil family. What more natural, therefore, than that Mr. Lucullus Fyshe, before serving the soda to the Duke, should try it on somebody else? And what better person could be found for this than Mr. Furlong, the saintly young rector of St. Asaph's, who had enjoyed the kind of expensive college education calculated to develop all the faculties. Moreover, a rector of the Anglican Church, who has been in the foreign mission field, is the kind of person from whom one can find out, more or less incidentally, how one should address and converse with a duke, and whether you call him your grace, or his grace, or just grace, or duke, or what. All of which things would seem to a director of the People's Bank, and the president of the Republican Soda Company, so trivial in importance that he would scorn to ask about them. So that was why Mr. Fyshe had asked Mr. Furlong to lunch with him, 
and to dine with him later on in the same day at the Mausoleum Club to meet the Duke of Dulham. And Mr. Furlong, realizing that a clergyman must be all things to all men and not avoid a man merely because he is a duke, had accepted the invitation to lunch and had promised to come to dinner, even though it meant postponing the willing workers' tangle class of St. Asaph's until the following Friday. Thus it had come about that Mr. Fyshe was seated at lunch, consuming a cutlet and a pint of Moselle in the plain downright fashion of a man so democratic that he is practically a revolutionary socialist, and doesn't mind saying so, and the young rector of St. Asaph's was sitting opposite to him in a religious ecstasy over a salmi of duck. "'The Duke arrived this morning, did he not?' said Mr. Furlong. "'From New York,' said Mr. Fyshe. "'He is staying at the Grand Palaver. I sent a telegram through one of our New York directors of the traction, and His Grace has very kindly promised to come over here to dine.' "'Is he here for pleasure?' asked the rector. "'I understand he is—' Mr. Fyshe was going to say, "'about to invest a large part of his fortune in American securities.' But he thought better of it. Even with the clergy, it is well to be careful. So he substituted, "'Is very much interested in studying American conditions.' "'Does he stay long?' asked Mr. Furlong. Had Mr. Lucullus Fyshe replied quite truthfully, he would have said, "'Not if I can get his money out of him quickly.' But he merely answered, "'That I don't know.' "'He will find much to interest him,' went on the rector in a musing tone. "'The position of the Anglican Church in America should afford him an object of much consideration. I understand,' he added, feeling his way, "'that his grace is a man of deep piety.' "'Very deep,' said Mr. Fyshe and of great philanthropy very great and i presume said the rector taking a devout sip of the unfinished soda that he is a man of immense wealth i suppose so answered mr fyshe quite carelessly all these fellows are mr fyshe generally referred to the british aristocracy as these fellows land you know feudal estates sheer robbery i call it how the working class, the proletariat, stand for such tyranny is more than I can see. Mark my words, Furlong, some day they'll rise, and the whole thing will come to a sudden end. Mr. Fyshe was here launched upon his favorite topic, but he interrupted himself just for a moment to speak to the waiter. What the devil do you mean, he said, by serving asparagus half-cold? Very sorry, sir, said the waiter. "'Shall I take it out?' "'Take it out? Of course take it out. "'Then see that you don't serve me stuff of that sort again, or I'll report you.' "'Very sorry, sir,' said the waiter. Mr. Fyshe looked at the vanishing waiter with contempt upon his features. "'These pampered fellows are getting unbearable,' he said. "'By gad, if I had my way, I'd fire the whole lot of them. "'Lock em out. Put em on the street.' That would teach him. Yes, Furlong, you'll live to see it that the whole working class will one day rise against the tyranny of the upper classes, and society will be overwhelmed. But if Mr. Fyshe had realized that at that moment, in the kitchen of the Mausoleum Club, in those sacred precincts themselves, 
there was a walking delegate of the Waiters' International Union leaning against a sideboard, with his bowler hat over one corner of his eye, and talking to a little group of the Chinese philosophers. He would have known that perhaps the social catastrophe was a little nearer than even he suspected. "'Are you inviting anyone else tonight?' asked Mr. Furlong. "'I should have liked to ask your father,' said Mr. Fyshe, "'but unfortunately he is out of town.' What Mr. Fyshe really meant was, "'I am extremely glad not to have to ask your father, "'whom I would not introduce to the Duke on any account.' Indeed, Mr. Furlong Sr., the father of the rector of St. Asaph's, who was president of the new amalgamated Hymnal Corporation and director of the Hosanna Pipe and Steam Organ Limited, was entirely the wrong man for Mr. Fyshe's present purpose. In fact, he was reputed to be as smart a man as ever sold a Bible. At this moment he was out of town, busied in New York with the preparation of the plates of his new Hindu Testament, copyright. But had he learned that a duke with several millions to invest was about to visit the city, he would not have left it for the whole of Hindustan. "'I suppose you are asking Mr. Boulder,' said the rector. "'No,' answered Mr. Fyshe very decidedly, dismissing the name absolutely. Indeed, there was even better reason not to introduce Mr. Boulder to the Duke. Mr. Fyshe had made that sort of mistake once, and never intended to make it again. It was only a year ago, on the occasion of the visit of young Viscount Fitzthistle to the Mausoleum Club, that Mr. Fyshe had introduced Mr. Boulder to the Viscount, and had suffered grievously thereby. For Mr. Boulder had no sooner met the Viscount than he invited him up to his hunting lodge in Wisconsin, and that was the last thing known of the investment of the Fitzthistle fortune. This Mr. Boulder of whom Mr. Fyshe spoke might indeed have been seen at that moment at a further table of the lunchroom eating a solitary meal, an oldish man with a great frame suggesting broken strength, with a white beard and with falling under eyelids that made him look as if he were just about to cry. His eyes were blue and far away, and his still mournful face and his great bent shoulders seemed to suggest all the power and mystery of high finance gloom indeed hung over him, for when one heard him talk of listed stocks and cumulative dividends, there was as deep a tone in his quiet voice as if he spoke of eternal punishment and the wages of sin. Under his great hands a chattering viscount, or a sturdy duke, or a popinjay Italian marquis was as nothing. Mr. Boulder's methods with titled visitors investing money in America were deep. He never spoke to them of money not a word. He merely talked of the great American forest. He had been born sixty-five years back in a lumber state, and, when he spoke of primeval trees and the howl of the wolf at night among the pines, there was the stamp of reality about it that held the visitor spellbound. And when he fell to talking of his hunting lodge far away in the Wisconsin timber, Duke, Earl, or Baron, that had ever handled a double-barreled express rifle, listened and was lost. "'I have a little place,' Mr. Boulder would say in his deep tones that seemed almost like a sob. "'A sort of shooting-box, I think you'd call it, up in Wisconsin. Just a plain place,' he would add, almost crying. "'Made of logs.' "'Oh, really?' the visitor would interject. "'Made of logs?' 
"'By Jove, how interesting!' "'All titled people are fascinated at once with logs, "'and Mr. Boulder knew it, at least subconsciously. "'Yes, logs,' he would continue, still in deep sorrow. "'Just the plain cedar, not squared, you know. "'The old original timber. "'I had them cut right out of the forest.' By this time the visitor's excitement was obvious. "'And is there game there?' he would ask. "'We have the timber-wolf,' said Mr. Boulder, his voice half-choking at the sadness of the thing. "'And, of course, the jack-wolf and the lynx.' "'And are they ferocious?' "'Oh, extremely so. Quite uncontrollable.' on which the titled visitor was all excitement to start for Wisconsin at once, even before Mr. Boulder's invitation was put in words. And when he returned a week later, all tanned and wearing bushwhacker's boots and covered with wolf-bites, his whole available fortune was so completely invested in Mr. Boulder's securities that you couldn't have shaken twenty-five cents out of him upside down. Yet the whole thing had been done merely incidentally round a big fire under the Wisconsin timber, with a dead wolf or two lying in the snow. So no wonder that Mr. Feisch did not propose to invite Mr. Boulder to his little dinner. No, indeed. In fact, his one aim was to keep Mr. Boulder and his log-house hidden from the Duke. And equally no wonder that as soon as Mr. Boulder read of the Duke's arrival in New York, and saw by the commercial echo and financial undertone that he might come to the city looking for investments, he telephoned at once to his little place in Wisconsin, which had, of course, a primeval telephone wire running to it, and told his steward to have the place well aired and good fires lighted and he especially enjoined him to see if any of the shanty-men thereabouts could catch a wolf or two, as he might need them. "'Is no one else coming, then?' asked the rector. "'Oh, yes. President Boomer of the University. We shall be a party of four. I thought the Duke might be interested in meeting Boomer. He may care to hear something of the archaeological remains of the continent.' If the Duke did so care, he certainly had a splendid chance in meeting the gigantic Dr. Boomer, the president of Plutoria University. If he wanted to know anything of the exact distinction between the Mexican Pueblo and the Navajo tribal house, he had his opportunity right now. If he was eager to hear a short talk, say half an hour, on the relative antiquity of the Neanderthal skull and the gravel deposits of the Missouri, his chance had come. He could learn as much about the Stone Age and the Bronze Age in America from President Boomer as he could about the Gold Age and the Age of Paper Securities from Mr. Feisch and Mr. Boulder. So what better man to meet a Duke than an archaeological president? And if the Duke should feel inclined, as a result of his American visit, for Dr. Boomer, who knew everything, understood what the Duke had come for, inclined, let us say, to endow a chair in primitive anthropology, or do any useful little thing of the sort, that was only fair business all round. Or, if he even was willing to give a moderate sum towards the general fund of Plutoria University, enough, let us say, to enable the President to dismiss an old professor and hire a new one, that surely was reasonable enough. 
The President, therefore, had said yes to Mr. Fyshe's invitation with alacrity, and had taken a look through the list of his more incompetent professors to refresh his memory. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by Linda Lee Paquette